If you turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5, we're just going to be looking at one verse today, and it is printed on your bulletin insert, and plenty of room today for taking notes since just one verse there. I want to set some context here because this verse is pretty simple. You could probably spend this next half hour or so just memorize the verse and go out and do it. The problem is not the difficulty of what is said to interpret. It's the difficulty of how to imply it, how to put it into action in God-honoring ways. And so, remember the context for the book of James. The book of James is called the wisdom book of the New Testament, the Proverbs of the New Testament, and it focuses on the fruit that must be born in our lives as an evidence of our faith. The foundational verse back in James chapter 1, verse 18, is that He brought us forth by the word of truth. That is, God reached down in His grace and mercy and born us again, brought us to life, and made us His child. And then He brings us into His family, makes us His sons and His daughters, and He makes us, one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. And this theme of an eternal family and speaking to family it sets the tone for what he is saying in verse 12 of chapter 5. Brothers, my brothers. It's what he's done throughout the book, actually. This is the 18th of 19 times that James says, my brothers. And it, it, it is helpful for us to review, to kind of hear James with that tone of voice speaking to us as, as loving, caring brothers, a, a family discussion of sorts. In chapter 1, he said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. He said, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. He warned, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. He said, know this, beloved brothers, that every person should be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. He said in chapter 2, my brothers, don't show partiality. He said, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom? He also said, what good is it if someone says he has faith but sees his brother or sister poorly clothed and says, go, be warmed and filled? He said in chapter 3 that many of you should become teachers, brothers. And warning about the tongue, he said, from the same mouth come blessings and cursings, my brothers. This should not be. Chapter 4, he said, don't speak evil against another brother. For the one who speaks evil against a brother judges his brother and speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And now in chapter 5, in the section we took just previous to this message, he says that, we, will be, we should be patient, therefore, brothers, and don't grumble against one another, brothers. An example of patience being the prophets and Job. And now, verse 12, hear this verse in the context of a family talk, speaking to brothers in Christ. This is God's Word to us today. He says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, or by any other earth, by any other oath. But let your yes be yes, let your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word. 
We thank you for the rich layers of understanding that we can have and how there is a connectedness between all 66 books that you have given to us. Lord, we thank you for the whole of it and its parts and the agreement that they have with each other. And we thank you for the power of the Word of God to to convict us, to show us where we have gone astray, but to correct us and bring us into the right way. Lord, would you not only teach us through your Word today, but would you train us? Would you make us more and more practiced at being truth-tellers, at being honest, by being men and women, boys and girls, that are living lives of integrity? Lord, do this for your glory, we pray, in your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife Janie and I are now empty nesters, so it's, it's a bit more quiet around the house these days. Now, this week, with the children coming back to visit, it's going to get loud again. But in those quiet times, in, those, in that quiet house, it allows for time of kind of reflecting back on those years when the kids were all growing up, and I get a little nostalgic. I think if you looked at our family and the conversations, if you had like a video recording of what took place, you'd hear a lot of laughing, you'd hear a lot of joking, you'd hear loving conversation, you'd hear arguments, you'd hear disagreements, and then as parents, what you'd hear from us would often be commands, directions, instructions, corrections, discipline, a lot of what to do, a lot of what we call grammatically imperatives, do it. But as I think back, I hope there would also be many of those foundational comments and encouragements about what's true. Uh, Those are the indicatives. What's true is that you're part of this family no matter what, that you are God's gift to our family and we will care for you and love you, we'll never turn our backs on you, you belong here, you're secure. And I hope they would understand that's without condition. We know that they're going to mess up, but what's true is that we love and accept you and you're part of this family. You're secure. We're never going to give up on you. We delight in you and we love you. All these words, you can hear your identity, the, the what's true. Grammatically, they're the indicatives. We need to understand in our parenting, in our homes, it's, it's the what's true that has to be the foundation for when we tell them what to do. Too often I remember my oldest, Emily and Josh, when they were in elementary school, it was my job to take them in to school in the morning. And so I was barking out the commands, get your shoes, get your backpack, get your coat, get going, come on, let's go. And so there were a lot of imperatives to get them out of the door. We're going to be late. I sometimes think that if my kids reflect on their uh, childhood, what's one thing that your dad cared about? And it was being on time, don't make me late. I don't know. But I also, you know, kind of reinforced that urgency by giving them a couple nicknames, Dilly and Dally. Because every time I saw them, they're just like dilly-dallying. Come on, let's go. Let's get to action. Now, I hope that over the years I grew and that I was more conscientious about lavishing those indicatives, those loving, caring, you're accepted, I, I, I want the best for you, so that they had an understanding of when I had to be straight with them, 
when we had to give those commands, those corrections, and that discipline, those imperatives. This week, I came across a quote from Sinclair Ferguson that, that connected some of the dots between what we're reading here in James, which has a lot of his imperatives. This is what you must do. When he says, above all, I mean, that puts an exclamation point. That raises it. I've said a lot of things, but this is important. And if he makes such a strong point, he has to put it in the context, my brothers, you're part of the family. That's what's true. So, this is what Ferguson says, the great gospel imperatives of holiness are ever rooted in the indicatives of grace that are able to sustain the weight of those imperatives. The apostles don't make the mistake that's often made in Christian ministry. For the apostles, the indicatives are more powerful than the imperatives in gospel preaching. So often in our preaching, our indicatives are not strong enough, great enough, holy enough, or gracious enough to sustain the power of the imperatives. And so our teaching on holiness becomes a whip or a rod to beat our people's backs because we've looked at the New Testament and that's all we ourselves have seen. We've seen how our own failure and we've seen the imperatives of holiness and we've lost sight of the great indicatives of the gospel that sustain those imperatives. Woven into the warp and woof of the New Testament exposition of what it means to be holy is the great groundwork that the self-existent, thrice-holy, triune God in Himself, by Himself, and for Himself committed Himself and all three persons of His being to bringing about the holiness of His own people. This is the Father's purpose, the Son's purchase, and the Spirit's ministry. I can't say it any better than Ferguson, but let me boil it down. We don't want to water down the commands of Scripture so we just kind of half mean them. There are strong imperatives in Scripture, and this is one of them. But what we have to do is to increase our understanding of what's true so that we can live out those gospel imperatives. Let's look first off at what James is actually forbidding here. He says, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Well, it sounds like he's saying that we shouldn't take any oaths at all whatsoever. And some branches of Christianity have taken this and Jesus' words to mean that, but I don't think that's at all what he's saying. He's not saying don't swear, like use cuss words and profanity or vulgar speech or uncouth speech. He's not dealing with that here doesn't give you license to go do that. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about something important because he says, above all. He's emphasizing an earnestness here. It's similar to the way that Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Or back in the Old Testament in Proverbs 4, 23, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. By using this phrase, what James is calling his readers to is to to pay close attention, making this stern command. And so, what is the importance of this? What's problematic here is when you are swearing by heaven or earth or by making these other oaths, it is taking God's name in vain if you don't follow through with them. 
That's what the third commandment says in Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You're attaching God's name to a promise. I swear to God, I will do this. And you don't follow through. Your yes is not yes. Your no is not no. That is attaching God's name to something sacred. When you attach God's name to it, you make it sacred. So it elevates the importance of our careful obedience or follow-through. Let's look at some of the Old Testament framework for oaths and vows. In Leviticus 19, verse 12, we read, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Again, God is very serious about this. When you put His name and you swear falsely, you are, you are bringing the Lord down. Now, oaths are allowed. In fact, God Himself swears. He says in Deuteronomy 6.10, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you, you're going to get these great cities. You didn't do anything for them. Be careful, He says. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's the Lord God that you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. And so, you may take His name, just don't take it in vain. It's following through on your commitments. Well, what was going on that James was particularly addressing? Because those commands were written in the Scriptures of the Old Testament. But when the rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were interpreting the Scriptures, the scribes, they were creating for themselves more extrapolations and further rules. In the Mishnah, uh, one author says, in the Jewish Mishnah, which is a compilation of decisions made by the rabbis on interpretations of various points of the law, there's a whole tract of this that's the subject of oaths. And in the discussion of binding oaths, it's asserted that oaths made by Shaddai, by Sabaoth, by the merciful and gracious, or by him who is long-suffering and of great kindness, or by any substituted name, they are liable. But oaths by heaven and earth are exempt. You see how that is? If you, if you just use God's name, then you're, you have to follow through. But if you just say by heaven or earth, you leave yourself a little wiggle room. You leave yourself an out. And so, oaths in the name of God were used to be binding, whereas those which had no direct mention of God, when it was made, they're not binding. And so, it's attaching God's Word to a promise and God's name to a promise that you make. But they wanted to find a way that, yeah, if, I, if I don't really mean it, if I'm just saying the words, how can I, how can I get out of this? It, it kind of reminds me of, of uh, maybe you've seen the Truman Show. It came out years and years ago. And it's the story of this guy who thinks he's in this beautiful, picturesque town, and he, he goes through his life day after day after day thinking everything is real, but it's all a, a stage play. It's all fake. He's the only one that's not in on it, though. And so all these actors are playing their part, and there are cameras set up to, to kind of film this thing, and it's like the ultimate reality shows before there were like reality shows, but everything is fake. Nobody is really 
telling the truth. They have lines and parts. And the key point where, the, where Truman figures out what's going on is when he's looking through a photo album and he gets to the page where he sees his wife on the picture, and it's an all a made-up story. She has her fingers crossed in the wedding picture. And he sees that, and it's like the music starts, and like, ah, this is all a lie. Because if you cross your fingers, right, you could, you could get away with saying something you don't say is true. Maybe that's something we did as kids, and, oh, I, was, I had my fingers crossed, I, I don't have to do that. And so that's a little bit maybe of what the Mishnah was kind of saying. If you swear by God, you got to do it. But if you swear by heaven or earth, you, you got an out. Let's look at what Jesus said in two places, Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, and then in Matthew 22. If you take Matthew 5, 33 to 37, and you kind of lay it out right next to James 5, 12, there's so much parallel there. It would almost be like James and Jesus were brothers or something, which they were. Again, he said, this is what Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said of the days of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say you, don't even, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Later, in Matthew 23, when he's pronouncing these woes to the Pharisees, he says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold of the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by that oath? You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Jesus is saying, look, whatever you swear by, God either made it or it's God, and you got to keep these promises. Let your yes be yes. Paul does something interesting. I love how he kind of puts a capstone on what Jesus was teaching here. And he says in 2 Corinthians 1, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Did I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As sure as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Sylvanius and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in Him it's always yes. For all the promises of God find their fulfillment, their yes, in Him. This is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Amen. It is true. And the promise that was made back in the garden, that I'm going to send a Savior. I'm going to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. That promise, Jesus, is the validation, is the proof that God keeps His promises 
He's here to do his job. And he did his job. He obeyed God's law perfectly where Adam didn't. And he completely obeyed God to the point of death. And as a validation of God the Father receiving Jesus' gift to him, he raised Jesus up from the dead. All the promises are yes in Jesus. And so Paul is saying, if God kept this promise in Jesus, then we need to keep our promises as followers of Jesus. Paul gives us those grounds for our promise keeping. So how do we apply this? This is where the command that James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no is is grounded. The, The motivation and the model for we for us keeping our promises, being honest, being people of integrity, is that our Father is the one that always keeps His promises. And His biggest promise to send the Redeemer is amen and yes to us. And so, when we keep our promises, when we fulfill our vows, we're showing a bit of our family resemblance. We're looking like our Father, who in His nature is 100% at keeping promises. The watching world looks at us as Christians, and we're not perfect. But hopefully, we actually care about the truth. Have you looked at culture lately? Have you looked at business? Have you looked at media? Does the truth matter to people anymore? Isn't truth relative pretty much? Is someone who speaks the truth, even to their hurt, look to be strange, out of the ordinary? Who speaks the truth in, say, a confession that they did the wrong thing? How rare is that? And so the truth, when we speak the truth and we look like a faithful God, a truth-telling God, that's going to have an impact. I love how Kent Hughes says it. He said, James's teaching is a radical call to radical truthfulness. If heeded, this call will set us apart from the rest of the world and even get us in trouble at times. But radical truthfulness will also bring power to our lives and grace to a confused world. All the lies are spinning. So, we make a a testimony to the world of God's value for truthfulness. You know what we're also doing in keeping our promises? We're telling God, thank you for keeping your promise to me. I am so grateful for your faithfulness to your promises in sending Christ. It's the least I can do in keeping my promises to another brother or sister in Christ. But why is this difficult? What, what temptations will we face when we try to live honestly and people of integrity? Well, I think quite often there's this draw of our own self-protection, our own self-interest, and basically when we want to get out of a tight spot, we'll often use these promises that we don't really mean. Uh, When we don't want to, to fully commit, we want to keep a little loophole there so we can, so we can back out. And then when we over-promise and under-deliver, and you, and you make a habit of that and you do that enough, people start to question your integrity. Do they, really, they, saw, they say a lot. They talk a lot. But are they going to really follow through this time? 
Or is this like the boy who cried wolf? How can we even trust this person? Sometimes we just want to buy some time, and, and we want to delay having to, having to kind of come through on that promise. Some of you are old enough to remember Popeye's friend, Wimpy, who loved hamburgers, and he'd always promise, I will gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. We, we want something, and so we'll make a promise we, we don't have any intention to really follow through on. Or maybe we have some vague intention to do that, but it's not high priority. So if something else comes up, we find an out. We look for a loophole. Sometimes we're, we're trying to, we, we kind of make an oath or swear because we've had this track record of unreli unreliability and we're trying to convince somebody, no, 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 we actually mean it this time. You know, students, if, if your teacher's going around the classroom during an exam and it has to say to you, eyes on your own paper, eyes on your, and, and kind of is suspicious that you got a wandering eye and you're looking for answers on somebody else's paper, don't say, I swear I'm not cheating. Making your teacher think that that means you're really serious or that you're actually not cheating. Just don't let your eyes wander. Just let your be, be people of integrity. We want to be able to weasel out of a deal. We want to maybe appeal, appear serious, committed, but we're not really. The fear of man pushes that. The self-interest pushes that. The, the protection pushes that. So what do we got to do? We have to go to those heart desires that are pushing and pulling us, and we need to con confess those to the Lord and repent of those. Start in the heart and identify and recognize when those are patterns. What do we do then to foster honesty and integrity in our lives? Again, I could just say, well, let your yes be yes and your no be no, period. And we would walk out of here and say, okay, I, that was clear from the get-go. How? How do I foster this? Well, we need to understand about truthfulness and pursue truthfulness and to understand that this world is under the influence in the spiritual realm of the father of lies. Satan himself, that's his title, and his demons are act up to that activity of constantly creating an atmosphere where nobody can know what is the truth, what's really real. And when we as Christians resist that and stand for the truth, that brings clarity to a watching world. Commitment, that, that wholehearted devotion to God, that God doesn't just care about your life on Sunday and your Christian life. He cares about your Monday through Sunday life and every part of your life. So, being consistent in keeping your commitments wherever you're at. Integrity, regarding our promises as sacred, remembering that we make promises before God, even if we don't say, I swear to God. God hears those promises. And keeping our promises even when it hurts. Consider Psalm 15:4, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. You know, sometimes when we make a commitment, we have a certain prediction of how we'll be able to fulfill that commitment, how we'll follow through, and we can do it. 
But then things change. Circumstances change. It gets all of a sudden really tough, and it's going to be hard and a hardship for me to keep that promise I made back then. Guess what? God calls us to fulfill that promise even when it's hard and when it hurts. Well, what does the watching world see when a Christian will actually follow through on a promise even though they take a hit financially, even though they take a hit relationally? They don't move up in status. They get kind of lowered. Whatever it is, when we value that integrity and keep the promise even when it hurts. You know, it's interesting that there are specific areas in your life and in mine where I imagine that you've already taken vows before God. And I want you to think of those vows that you've taken before God and other witnesses. Most of you have taken membership vows I love when we solemnize that, when we say this is an important thing, and we hear from Scripture, and we hear these promises, do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance on the grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you hear that? Humble reliance on God's grace, not be a good member or else. No, in humble reliance on God's grace that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ. Do you promise to support the church in its worship and its work to the best of your ability? Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Those are some commitments we've already made that we can re-examine. How are we doing at keeping those promises? Many of you have taken marriage vows. When I said, I will have this woman to be my wedded wife, to live with her after God's commandments in the holiest state of marriage, that I will love her, honor, and cherish her so long as we both shall live. If she does this, that, and the other, no, there were no clauses in the marriage vows where I could get a loophole. This is what I committed to. I, Nathan, take you, Janie, to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow as long as we both shall live. Those are incredible promises that when we have taken them and we take them seriously, you do your part of those promises even to your hurt when the other isn't doing their part. Baptismal vows, when we hear those, often when children are baptized, we, tell, we ask the parents, do you unreservedly commit your daughter to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace? Remember, all of these indicatives of God's grace have to undergird these commands that you follow through on your vows that you will endeavor to set before her a godly example, that you will pray with her and for her, and that you will teach her the doctrines of holy religion, that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring her up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And if you sat in this room when one of those baptisms taken place, a question to the congregation, do you, congregation, undertake the responsibility of assisting this couple in the Christian nurture of this child. How are we doing at some of those promises we've already made? You know, I'm not, I, yes, be careful about the promises you make in the future, and, and some of you may have these very promises in your future. Consider them carefully before you make them, 
And when you have made them, by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, fulfill those vows. I want to conclude with what happened when Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, betrayed his Lord and denied him. At the end of Matthew 26, Peter was sitting outside the courtyard. Jesus is being tried. And a servant girl came to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out into the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Peter denies Jesus using oaths and swearing falsely. He feels horrible. He weeps bitterly. But God graciously restores Peter. He calls him back to himself. There's hope for mess-ups like Peter and like me who, when I break my promises, feel terrible. In John 21, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, he's raised from the dead. He comes back and he sees Peter. And he has to go to him personally. He says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes. Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And after saying this to him, he said, follow me. I know you messed up. I know you broke your vows and you swore falsely. You stabbed me in the back, but I forgive you and I love you and I want you to follow me. You're still of use to me in feeding others the truth. God forgives and restores graciously. He keeps His promises. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And maybe you've screwed up pretty bad. Maybe you've broken a vow, an oath. There's a future for you. There's hope when we repent and come back to Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we know that we just by nature are self-seeking, self-preservers, self-interested, and our mouths seem to overflow with that desire in making promises we don't intend to keep and in swearing falsely. And, Lord, our integrity and our honesty do not come naturally but supernaturally. And so we cry out to you, Lord, Help us to obey you in these areas that matter so much. We pray that you would do this for your glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.